Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point and Opinion Show coming to you live from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. A race that's down to the wire. Turkey is gripped in a presidential race that's gone into the second round. The two contenders, incumbent President Recep Tayyip Erdogan and opposition leader Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, have both failed to secure an outright majority in the first round, which took place on May the 14th. Among the host of factors that have contributed to the situation, the economy figures heavily. After a decade of robust growth, Turkish economy has experienced run away inflection that went as high as 85 percent last October. This is a problem the country was not unfamiliar with, but given the more difficult relations between Erdogan and the West, how are economic woes shaping the political landscape? Has President Erdogan's recipe to fight inflation with lowering interest rates stopped work? And how tough will the job be for whoever to emerge from the second round. I'm pleased to be joined from Zhuhai in southern China's Guangdong province by Seljuk Kolak Olur, Associate Professor of the Globalization and Development Program at the Beijing Normal University, Hong Kong Baptist University, United International College, who is also founding director of the think tank Turkish Center for Asia Pacific Studies. And I'm pleased to be joined from Xi'an, capital of northwest China's Shanxi province by Wang Jing, Associate Professor of Middle Eastern Studies at China Northwest University. Gentlemen, welcome to The Point. So, um, Professor Kolak Aulu, let me go to you first. Uh, Turkish Supreme Election Council said that neither of the incumbent, uh, neither of incumbent President uh, Erdogan or his rival Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu secured more than 50% of the votes. That's why they're going into the second round. So, uh, help us understand what really caused the nail-biter race at this moment and what is this election mean for the future of the nation? This election is very critical uh, for Turkish politics and Turkey's direction uh, particularly and uh, during the election campaigns and afterwards so both leading candidates and now uh, they, they will uh, run again in the runoff uh, second round they pledge and they offer more economic loom uh, and more economic progress for all uh, segments of society and also for all, all uh, sectors of life. Uh, this is, I think, very uh, critical in that regard. So uh, the, the elect uh, presidential candidates uh, during the first round, uh, they pledge uh, or they promote some economic policies, some economic packages for different groups, different uh, segments of societies. Uh, this, I think, uh, will continue during the, uh, the runoff uh, process, and uh, they try to persuade uh, Turkish uh, voters how uh, they will be successful uh, in, in near future to uh, to get more economic progress, more economic development, and they will create more jobs for everyone. So this is the more uh, this is the critical point for uh, mm -hmm. for uh, election the candidates of presidential race mm -hmm. to proceed uh, their voters. Yeah, Professor Wang, how critical, how challenging is that job to promise to solve the economic woes that the country has been facing? As I said, inflation has been very high. Last uh, October, the rate was 85%. That was uh, the highest in two decades. And uh, the Turkish lira has also been plunging since two years ago and sank to a record low these days. Um, help us understand how big 
uh, of a problem um, Turkish leaders are facing in terms of its economy? Uh, well, in short, the biggest challenge of Turkey's economy is that Turkey's uh, economic scope is actually uh, withdrawing and uh, is becoming smaller and smaller in terms of United States dollars. Uh, uh, on the one hand, you mentioned that Turkish currency lira actually is on the trend of inflation, uh, so that leads to the uh, economic activities in the Turkish market also decrease. And then on the other hand, the investment from the foreign ex uh, countries uh, due to a lot of uh, reasons, uh, for example, the, the activity uh, in, the, in the world market also decreased and also the interest from the uh, Western countries also increased. So the investment from the other countries into the Turkish market also decreased. That leads to uh, the uh, high uh, level, uh, growing high levels of unemployment and also further uh, growing of the inflation of the, ter the, the Turkish currency. So no matter who wins the future election, no matter who become the new president, they have to face a very, very uh, mm. complicating and very, very difficult uh, uh, situations of the, uh, to improve and to develop Turkish economic uh, activities to reshape the Turkish uh, policy, economic policy to give and encourage more confidence to the Turkish investors mm. to help them to go to improve yeah. the Turkish economic situation. Professor Kulakalu, what do you think is the biggest problem the Turkish economy is faced with as, uh, at this moment? The inflation or the, or the value of the Turkish lira, uh, of course, is uh, symptoms of the problem. What do you think is lying at the bottom of the, of the situation? So, of course, inflation, high inflation rate is a big problem for Turkish economy. But on the other, uh, the next Turkish government, next president, uh, will likely keep the, uh, create more jobs. Uh, so then creating more jobs, uh, but on the other, controlling the inflation. Uh, so it is a very difficult task uh, for, uh, for that. Uh, Turkey, the, the, the next leader of Turkey and the next government of Turkey will try to find uh, foreign uh, financial resources uh, from uh, international financial institutions or from uh, different countries. So getting more uh, financial flow to Turkish uh, market, particularly Turkish stock exchange and also for the Turkish uh, finance system. And the other uh, thing to uh, for, for control the inflation and on the one side and also creating new jobs, foreign direct investments from different countries are very important uh, to the country. So. Uh, the, the next Turkish government will focus on these tough economic issues, but also there is another challenge. There is a slowdown and high inflation in global economy too. So within under these very uh, uncertain uh, future of the world economy, so the next uh, Turkish government will try to fix all these problems together without creating uh, f further economic difficulties. Uh, within the country. Well, what are the different proposals the two contenders are coming up with in terms of solving these problems? Um, Mr. Erdogan had a very good performance in terms of spurring economic development in the early years of his presidency or his leadership, but uh, over the past few years, situation has not been so rosy. So what is he proposing? And in terms of economic policy, what is his contender, Mr. Kılıçdaroğlu, is proposing? Uh, in fact, both leaders uh, leaders also offering the same thing. So, getting more international investments to to to, to the country, and also uh, getting also financial flow to Turkey and boom the Turkey's uh, manufacturing units for that. 
during the election campaigns, for example, uh, President Erdogan also put uh, on the agenda for uh, increasing defense industry products for Turkey. Also, Turkey is earning, uh, gaining some income from uh, the uh, sale of these uh, Turkish defense products. Uh, but on the other, uh, the opposition candidate Kılıçdaroğlu and his economy team uh, offered to further integration with the European Union and also uh, updating the customs union with the European Union uh, will provide further advantages for Turkish economy for that. So uh, they are, uh, their uh, pledges are very close to each other and they try to persuade their uh, supporters they will be more successful uh, and to fix the Turkish economic problems uh, in, in coming months and in uh, early years of their, uh, their governments. In that regard, uh, it, it is uh, very neck and neck and also economic policies are very close to each other. So then there are, uh, we cannot say that there are very huge differences for that, mm. but they are very similar economic agendas. Uh, but the concern is that the high inflation, the combating high inflation and creating more jobs and keep Turkey's growth on track, uh, around 5%. Professor Wong, what is your take on the situation? Uh, for instance, uh, the uh, prospect of more integration with the European Union on the economic front, how is realistic is that going to be given the, the very treacherous road Turkey has traveled in terms of uh, applying for EU membership? Uh, I think there will be uh, there will be the cr very critical time for the Turkish relations with the EU. Of course, there were some kind of systematic problem. No matter who win the election, they can they have both of them have to face this kind of problem. For example, the refugee problems, the Turkish problematic relations with Greece, with Cyprus, uh, and also with other uh, uh, European countries because due to the the, the, the marine time uh, uh, disputes and also other kind of the historic and religious disputes. So these kind of the problem will be remain there and also become the obstacles for the Turkish relations with uh, them, its membership uh, of the uh, UN. So no matter who wins the election, they also have to face this kind of problem. But this, this might have some kind of the, uh, the transformation or some kind of the new changes after this uh, election, because uh, I think uh, for the both leaders, if you want to improve their economic situation inside Turkey, they have to uh, adopt the new policies to not only the neighboring countries, but also the, uh, to adopt the new policies to improve their relations with the European countries and other countries to attract more investment from these countries to decrease the unemployment risks and well as to increase the economic activities inside the Turkish market. Mm. So no matter who wins the election, that will be the critical time for their economy. Yeah, given the kind of uh, uh, attitude or relationship between um, President Erdogan and uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin, how much of a prospect is there, Professor Kolak Olu, for Turkey to have a more harmonious economic and trade relationship with the European Union? Uh, so far, uh, Ankara uh, followed very balanced uh, relationship, uh, particularly outbreak of the Russia-Ukraine conflict in general. Uh, so Turkey has uh, Turkish economy is very uh, dependent on the European market, but on the other, uh, Russia is very big economic partner for Turkey, providing uh, gas and oil to, to Turkish market, and also Turkish export uh, export goods uh, are uh, are uh, seeking more larger share in the Russian market too. Uh, in that regard, uh, keeping this balanced relationship is very important uh, to keep uh, economic stability in the country. 
so in that regard, both uh, the, the front runners of the presidential elections also offering balanced and also more economic uh, development with the, uh, increasing cooperation with leading uh, world economies in that regard. Mm. Uh, after the election, I think whoever uh, wins, whoever comes to power, the, the first priority to fix all political uh, relations uh, and also uh, keeping away from the uh, risky areas for political relations and also promote the economic cooperation with all leading uh, partners, economic partners of Turkey. So this will be the main issue for the next uh, government uh, of, of Turkey. We're going to leave it there. Many thanks to Selce Kulak, the Associate Professor of the Globalization and Development Program at Beijing Normal University, Hong Kong Baptist University, United International College, and Professor Wang Jing from Northwest University of China. We'll take a short break, and when we come back, South Sudan has been suffering from humanitarian crisis, and the situation is getting worse because of conflict in neighboring Sudan. How are humanitarian agencies dealing with the situation. I had an exclusive interview with Emma Tuck, emergency specialist for UNICEF in South Sudan. Stay tuned. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. After the latest armed conflict broke out in Sudan, the humanitarian situation in neighboring South Sudan has reached a critical stage. Tens of thousands of South Sudan refugees, including vulnerable children and uh, women uh, who have been seeking help in Sudan, are forced to return home in distress. Unfortunately, prior to the Sudan crisis, South Sudan has been already in a humanitarian crisis for years. So what is the current situation in terms of women and children in South Sudan? How does the Sudan conflict exacerbate the situation? What's ensured and what can the international community offer? I had the opportunity to sit down with uh, Emma Tuck, joining me from Juba, capital of South Sudan who is uh, emergency specialist for UNICEF in South Sudan. She worked in humanitarian field for over 14 years, including positions in Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Turkey, as well as uh, Nepal and other African areas. Let's listen to what she had to say. So I'm pleased to be joined from Juba, South Sudan, by Emma Tuck, emergency specialist of the United Nations Children's Fund in South Sudan. First of all, help us understand how heavy was your work before the conflict started in Sudan? Yeah, thank you. And, and thank you for much, so much for having us on the show. Um, already in South Sudan, we were suffering major humanitarian crises and situations affecting women and children. Um, already this year, let me let me give you some examples. We've had a, a major conflict in the, the northeast of the country, um, with over 50,000 people displaced from that conflict. Already 9.4 million people and 5 million children were in need of humanitarian assistance. That's life-saving support and assistance that was needed to help them meet their basic needs. That's because of conflict, that's because of the economic situation, and because of the major impacts of climate change that we've been seeing across the country. Give people um, a different kind of idea of uh, what exactly do you mean when you say some five million children are in, were, in, were already in need of help before the conflict started. What kind of situation, how is life like in South Sudan, for instance? I mean, let's, let's take healthcare, for example. Only 60% of health facilities across the country are functioning. 
and the health the health systems are struggling to meet what the needs of the populations we see preventable diseases killing children sadly every day malaria diarrhea um, to to give a very shocking statistic one in one in ten children die before their fifth birthday so that's where we are in some of the basic standards already three million children were out of schools and that's because of conflicts um, preventing access to some schools schools damaged and closed due to floods over 800 schools were closed last year due to floods as well as poverty and school dropouts and and disease that means that children are unable to attend schools so how bad is the situation now uh, with the conflict in Sudan driving people away from their homes? I see um, a UNICEF report on the 12th of May, for instance, saying that at least uh, 450,000 children um, are being forced to flee their homes from the violence in Sudan. How much of that is being felt across the border in South Sudan? South Sudan and Sudan were one country in very recent history. So there is huge ties between the two both in terms of population, but also in terms of trade, uh, food that comes from Sudan, people who cross the border daily, regularly for their trade and their basic means. So many, many are returning to South Sudan. To date, uh, 57,000 have already crossed the border. The majority of those were South Sudanese who were refugees in Sudan. So they'd fled conflict from South Sudan for safety in Sudan, and now they're having to flee back. Some of them are finding that their homes are no longer are longer there, or they're finding that they're arriving into places with no no support, um, no facilities, and no healthcare. So, out of those, we're already seeing at least fifty percent, so around twenty-five thousand, are children, um, and also a large percentage are women. So, women and children who are crossing the border, and actually. The conditions of people arriving, I mean, you can imagine having fled war. You can imagine running from your home and not being able to carry all your possessions, um, not being able to access banks to take, take money as you come. So the conditions of women and children when they're reaching the borders on this side, um, we're seeing high levels of hunger, um, high levels of malnutrition, disease, diarrhea. Um, so people are coming in very, very vulnerable conditions and need, need urgent assistance when they arrive. How would you describe the situation then? I mean, you, are, you have been having to deal with this situation and rather unknown to the outside world, everybody being fixated mm -hmm. on you know, their own problems, other, uh, region, uh, regions in other parts of the world, not much is talked about. How would you describe the situation to tell people exactly where you are? I think some of the photos of, of people arriving on the, on the borders that have been circulating on media um, kind of speak for themselves. And let me just describe, I was up on the border um, on the eastern side of the country, a place called Renk, last week. And when you're there, you're under the heat, incredible heat. Um, and the host communities are there who already are very vulnerable. Um, their prices in the market have soared. So you see that host communities are struggling. Then you see carts and buses, donkey pulled carts with children on the back, buses with people piled high over the top, hundreds of people crammed into small buses and, and women and children who have been out under that heat for days, sometimes weeks, having fled their homes. And as they arrive, you know, humanitarian agencies and the government are working their hardest to, to provide services and facilities. Um, but the, the time it takes 
it's not been enough to, to reach every person immediately. So this effort to scale up is, is essential to make sure that we can meet everybody. But the conditions at the border are very hard in terms of access. You know, we're talking about very remote border locations. Some areas only accessible by flight, by helicopter, some only by boat. Um, so it's really a challenging operation and the, the teams up there who are working and the populations who are arriving are really suffering under very hard conditions. What does that tell you about the severity of the situation in Sudan? Do you see any signs that the situation may be slowly alleviating as both sides are, are entering into talks, however difficult that may be? Well, we have a UNICEF presence uh, in Sudan. And we've had large programs across the country. Um, the teams have been able to, to mobilize a response and they are working across our sectors to mobilize to support those in need. But the situation inside the country, from what we understand from, from our colleagues um, in the north, is really alarming. And the markets are not functioning also, the health facilities are not functioning, and many, up to millions are displaced. Um, already even pre-conflict, so you're adding further displacement. So those who are remaining inside are also really struggling to meet their basic needs, um, even those outside of the direct conflict zones because systems are breaking down. So we're seeing on both sides the situation has a huge humanitarian impact. In terms of how the conflict has affected uh, how may be shifting. We are seeing fewer numbers of people arriving day by day, mm -hmm. but that doesn't necessarily dictate an ease in conflict. That might be a change in, in their ability to access this border point. It, they might be shifting to other border points. It might be safer for them to stay where they are currently. So it's all extremely dynamic at the moment. What are you calling on the international community to do to help you deal with this crisis, with the crisis uh, upon a crisis and uh, what have been the reception so far? I think the, the immediate things and as been spoken by the UN is the immediate ceasefire, cessation of hostilities, enabling humanitarian response in all areas on all sides of the border um, and within the country, enabling fair and free access for populations to reach that response and to equally have their basic needs, um, for humanitarians to be able to move safely across Sudan and across the countries affected so that they can provide it. Um, so far, there is a huge um, support from the humanitarian, uh, from the international community. But as we see, the conflict is continuing and the needs of people are rising day by day. So this support needs to intensify um, and it also needs financial support. Already, maybe just to give you some numbers, our humanitarian response plan for South Sudan, pre the Sudan crisis, was only 28% funded. Now we're in May, so you're almost halfway through the year and we had only reached 20% of our funding requirements to meet the basic needs of the 5 million children in need here. Now with this additional crisis on top of that, without additional funds, as well as funding our existing response plan, we're really going to see quite a drastic deterioration in the situation. Is financial distress the biggest challenge for you now? It's one of the biggest. It's, it's, it's becoming a barrier to some response, um, especially now as in some areas we're having to establish new camps. So this requires a larger amount of funds as a startup. 
um, and with inflation rising, the cost of doing business is increasing. So without uh, further funds, it's really going to be a challenge for the humanitarian community. What is the next uh, biggest challenge you can think of you want to mention here? I would say two things. One is uh, the economic, economic situation. Um, with, the, with the conflict in Sudan, how it's impacted the economy here, how it impacts food availability and food prices, um, and the knock-on effects of the fuel. We're already having populations in pre-famine conditions. Mm -hmm. Now, with this impact on the markets, we're going to see very quickly in the coming few months um, and into the, into the begin, end of the year, that malnutrition rates are going to increase even further. And we already have extremely high severe acute malnutrition. So the economic impact um, is one of the biggest challenges. The second is climate. So as we approach within the next one month, the rainy season, it's estimated 1 million people are going to be affected by floods. Large areas of the country are still underwater from the rains from last year. And we're expecting to see that impact yeah. spread further. My last question, um, Ms. Tuck, uh, you know, people would love to help, but they would also love to hear a little bit of optimism, even in the slightest sense. Is there anything you can provide people that uh, um, there is hope, that people are trying, a slightest sense of optimism to, to, leave this, to leave this interview with? I don't know whether you can find Absolutely. any. No, there, there definitely is. And one thing is the the ability of the humanitarian community and its resilience and the population's ability and their resilience to adapt and respond. The flexibility that we've seen and the collaboration between the government and the humanitarian community to rapidly scale up to this evolving situation. You know, children on the border are immediately being screened and they're receiving treatment for malnutrition. Children are receiving care for diarrhea the minute they reach the border. Um, we're seeing cases where people have recovered from disease as they arrive. Food is being distributed. So there has been an, an epic scale up um, from, the, from the humanitarian community. Um, and we're seeing children who have been unaccompanied or separated from their families hmm. through the crisis already being reunited with their families. That's so right. identifying the families of missing and lost children and already reunifying them at this early stage hmm. is really uh, exceptional. That's great news. Um, thank you so much for uh, persevering in hardships and doing your job. Uh, Emma Tuck, Emergency Specialist of uh, UNICEF in South Sudan, joining us from Juba. That's it for this edition of The Point with me, Liu Xin, coming to you from Beijing. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Liu Xin in Beijing.